2: From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. You wouldn't think that the month in which you're born has much to do with your medical outcomes or if a surgeon is operating on their birthday, but chance and timing can have a big impact on how we're treated and diagnosed in hospitals and doctor's offices, sending quote, to otherwise similar people down very different paths of care. This hour, we'll learn how happenstance influences our experience with the healthcare system and how we begin to correct for them from doctors Bapu Jena and Christopher Worsham, whose new book is called Random Acts of Medicine. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The month in which you're born. A marathon that's taking place when you need an ambulance. A national cardiology conference being held on the day you have a heart attack. They're random events, but also what my guests call the hidden yet predictable forces that can have a big impact on our health how we're diagnosed or treated in hospitals and doctor's offices. This hour, we'll learn more about how chance, timing, and cognitive biases influence our healthcare and what we can do about the random occurrences that might harm us. Joining me are Dr. Bapu Jena, professor at Harvard Medical School, a medical doctor and an economist and host of the Freakonomics MD podcast. Bapu, so glad to have you with us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Also with us is Dr. Christopher Worsham, pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, a researcher at Harvard Medical School. Christopher, really glad to have you as well.
4: Uh, thank you. Good to be Today.
2: here. Good to have you. They are both co-authors of the new book Random Acts of Medicine: The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. So, Papu and Chris, your book is full of fascinating studies, but I have to admit, Papu, the idea that random occurrences can play such a big role in the healthcare we get, which can also mean in life or death situations, is a little unsettling, even if it makes sense.
3: <laughs> Wait, you're not reassured by that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, let me let me say the following. Uh, Chance, random things affect us all the time, and um, I was just uh, telling a friend the other day. I, I met someone recently who met their spouse at the DMV, uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, and, and they met them because they're waiting in line for a couple of hours and started chatting with the person behind them, who they ended up marrying. Now that's totally random, uh, but it's not actionable. You wouldn't you wouldn't tell your son or daughter, you know what? Look, here's how you're gonna you're gonna find your future spouse, your soulmate. <laughs> Go to the DMV and uh, roll the dice, right? Uh, and, and things like that happen in health. People are hit by cars. They get cancer without any risk factors. But this is a book that Chris and I wrote that's all about a different set of random occurrences, chance occurrences, where you can actually learn something from them and, and act on it.
2: Right, apply them, which is really the part of it that uh, is more reassuring and more hopeful, really, about improving the kind of care that we do receive. Well, Well, Chris, since it's August... Let's start with the health impacts that you've observed based on the month in which you were born, especially if you were a kid. And basically, because I understand that Bapu and you both have kids born in August. I also have a kid born in August (laughs) who just turned five. And I've learned that kids with August birthdays from you, Chris, are likely more likely. To get the flu than kids say with September or October birthdays. So can you just tell us about this study?
4: Yeah, that's right, Mina. So uh, yeah, my both Bach and I have kids born August. We just we just had a, a birthday party out on the splash pad uh, on <laughs> nice. a nice warm Boston day, um, and that means that their doctor's visits for their annual checkup happen in August. It's the birthday is usually uh, recommended as a reminder that you need to go to the doctor for your annual checkup. And when we take my son in, I think he has an appointment next week, uh, inevitably what's going to happen is that we'll go to the appointment and then the pediatrician is going to say, uh, why don't you make an appointment to come back uh, in a couple weeks to get the flu shot because it's not available yet. And this happened with Bapu and, and his child. And we got to thinking, well, this, this can't just be us. This has to be a you know a larger problem for any child that's that's born in the summertime, uh, they miss out on this flu shot. But if our kids just had happened to have been born a couple of weeks later in September or maybe October, it would have been easy for them to get their flu shot. They would have just got it while they were there. So we have to come back for an extra visit with our summer born kids. Fall born kids don't have that extra visit. And so looking at insurance claims for about 1.2 million children uh, aged two to five years old we found that indeed kids born in the summer months had the lowest chances of having a flu shot. Um, I think it bottomed out around 40, 41% for kids born in June compared to kids born in the fall had the highest chances of having a flu shot around 55% for kids born in October. So we're looking at a, you know, up to 15 percentage points difference in the chance of getting the flu shot simply because of what month the child is born in. And then we took that another step, assuming that the flu shot works, which we know it does. um, It should mean that those summer born kids are more likely to get the flu, which they are. And we took it another step, they're actually more likely to Uh, spread it to their older family members.
2: Wow. So less likely to get the flu shot, more likely to get the flu, more likely to infect family members with the flu. And Babu, I do not want to underestimate that it can actually be difficult to get your kid back in just a couple months later for that flu shot, because there can be a lot of factors in terms of scheduling and so on, right?
3: Well, I I say the following, Mina, The, the solution here, of course, is for all of us to go back in time. And, and change the birth month to September. So we'll, we'll put that aside. Uh, but you're right. I mean, like in, in my case, it probably took four to six hours to sort it out because I was calling CVS and Walgreens. At that time, they weren't vaccinating kids that early. Our son was three years old at the time. And I ended up bringing him back to the pediatrician, but that's almost like a half-day affair. So it's a, it's a huge barrier to getting care.
2: And so this flu study that had these far-reaching implications, it's what's called a natural experiment in your book. Could you explain what a natural experiment is, Chris?
4: Uh, sure. So simply put, a natural experiment um, in contrast to, a, 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 let's say, a randomized control trial, a natural experiment is where patients go down one path or another, not because there's some researcher flipping a coin or some scientist assigning someone to the treatment arm or control arm, but by accident. So something uh, outside of everyone's control sort of accidentally leads to randomization. And when that happens, we get all the benefits of randomization that you would get in a randomized trial. Uh, but we can see it in situations where we can't reasonably do randomized trials or, or when we can look in the past at things that have already happened. And so it's a really powerful uh, statistical tool.
2: And Bapu, this is a powerful statistical tool that economists have used quite a lot, right?
3: Economists and and epidemiologists have really sort of developed these as as, as a tool. I think economists probably use them quite a bit more often than any discipline right now. And we're starting to see them used more in medicine. But, you know, to be quite honest, the typical study that we see in medicine, you know, probably a study looking at the relationship between coffee and some form of cancer or red wine or chocolate. All they do is they compare people who who partake in certain behaviors and those who don't and then they look at outcome differences and then unfortunately what they try to do is they ascribe any differences in outcomes to that specific behavior when in fact there's so many things that are different about people who drink red wine or who drink uh, uh, who eat chocolate or who drink coffee that you can't reasonably conclude that it's a causal effect of that behavior so
2: what are sort of the the benefits of natural experiments, Christopher was touching on this, but could you give like a concrete example of something that one might have always wondered, but really can't test in sort of the gold standard testing environment of a randomized trial and so on?
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, you a cha- I'll give you an example from one of the chapters in the book. It's called Why Are Marathons Hazardous to Your Health? And it starts with a story with my wife who was uh, running this race a few years ago, and she wanted me to watch her on the race route. And I planned to do that. So I was going to park at the hospital where I work because it was right on the race route. And I couldn't do that because the roads were blocked to the hospital because of the race. And so a few hours later, I see my wife. I tell her what happened. And she says to me in an offhanded way, well, what happened to everybody who needed to get to the hospital that day? And fast forward many months later, we have this paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that shows that when a city hosts a marathon, mortality goes up for older Americans who just live in that city on the marathon route. And the reason mortality goes up for cardiac conditions is because people can't get to the hospital because there's delays in care. Now, that's sort of an interesting finding about how large public events impact your health, even if you're not a participant. But it goes back to your question is, well, what do we learn from it about medicine? One of the most important questions we face in medicine as providers, but also as patients is. How quickly do you need to act? So, you know, you've got a five-year-old. We also have a five-year-old who's about to turn six. If he's got a headache and a fever in the middle of the night, do I call the pediatrician immediately? Do I give him some Tylenol, wait a few hours, see how he does? Do I go to the emergency room? Uh, If you're a doctor in the hospital or a nurse and someone is short of breath, do you have to escalate things within minutes, uh, within a half an hour, within a half a day? We could never... Plausibly or feasibly conduct a randomized trial which says, oh, you know, a thousand people who have chest pain, half of you go to the emergency room now and the other half of you, uh, you know, listen to a couple of podcasts and and check in in a few hours. That wouldn't be ethical. But here through the marathon, we're afforded this natural experiment where we can show quite convincingly that for certain conditions like acute cardiac conditions, even minutes of delays uh, matter.
2: We're talking with... Bapu Jenna, a medical doctor and economist and host of the Freakonomics MD podcast. Dr. Chris Worsham, pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, a research at Harvard Medical School. Bapu's also at Harvard Medical School. They're co-authors of the new book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you ever wondered if a chance occurrence influenced the medical care you received uh, do the scenarios that the guests are describing make sense to you what questions do you have about natural experiments or about the role of chance and timing in medicine you can email forum at kqed.org you can also post on twitter facebook instagram discord we're at kqed forum you can call us at 866-733-6786 6786 and, and Babu, I am so struck by how it was your wife going, well, what about all these people who need to get to the hospital? How do you sort of choose a good candidate for an, for a natural experiment, for an investigation based on a hunch like that or a question like that?
3: Well, the, the key thing is that if you're interested in the effect of some intervention, and so in this case, we were thinking about, are there delays in care? You have to make sure that the people who are exposed to that intervention, in this case, having a heart attack on a marathon day, are the same in basically every way that you can imagine as people who are not exposed to that intervention. So in a randomized trial, you have two groups. They are basically very similar. And the only difference is that one is exposed to an intervention, the other isn't. And that's the same philosophy behind a natural experiment. That's sort of the identifying principle.
2: Uh the randomness (laughs) and all right we'll have more after the break stay with us you're listening to forum i'm Nina kim
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at how chance and timing can have a bigger impact than you might think on how we're treated and diagnosed in hospitals and doctor's offices. We're talking with Chris Worsham, pulmonary and critical care physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Bapu Jenna, a medical doctor and economist and host of the Freakonomics M.D. podcast about their new book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And we're inviting you, our listeners, to join us with your questions and experiences, maybe because of when you got sick or where you happened to be at a particular time, you were treated a certain way and have wondered if that played a role uh, in the medical care that you received. Um, questions that you might have about the role of chance and timing in medicine. Maybe you're a healthcare worker and uh, you are resonating or interested or connecting to some of the experiences that Bapu and Chris uh, observed and further investigated. Share your thoughts at eight six six seven three three six seven eight six. 6786 Your questions by emailing forum at kqed.org. Post comments or questions on our social channels, channels at KQED forum. So Chris, I want to look at how medical outcomes are influenced by seemingly random things having to do with the doctor responsible, the physician responsible. And there was one story uh, that I was really struck by that was a little hard to believe, but that people can actually be worse off if they're being operated on by a surgeon who's having a birthday can you tell us a little bit about this?
4: Yeah, so there's an interesting study that uh, Bapu and, and some other colleagues worked on that we included in the book uh, in a chapter that's really focused on um, some of the things that can distract us uh, and and sort of make it harder uh, to be our best in the hospital. Because uh, at the end of the day, we're all doctors, nurses, everyone who works in healthcare are human beings. And so we can get distracted. We, our minds can be elsewhere. And so uh, they wanted to look into whether the distractions that a birthday might cause. And, you know, for an adult, it it might not be an exciting birthday party and presents as much as you're getting text messages from your friends, you're getting pings on your social media. You've got, uh, you know, maybe if you're a surgeon, the rest of the OR staff that you work with is, um, you know, joking around with you a little bit. So there might be a little bit of distraction. And so what they did was they, they looked at what happened to patients um, based on whether their surgeon operated on them on the surgeon's birthday. And so they looked at the surgeon's birthday, they looked backwards, uh, a string of days before the surgeon's birthday, a string of days after the surgeon's birthday, and found that indeed surgical complications were higher when a patient was operated upon on a surgeon's birthday. And importantly, there weren't other differences between those patients. So it's not like the surgeons were taking uh, harder cases on their birthday or something like that. So the patients were otherwise similar. But if they happened to get surgery on their surgeon's birthday, uh, complication rates were higher.
2: So, Papa, how did you even think to, to look into this?
3: Well, so I, I want to give credit to my colleague Yusuke Sugawa, who's, who's also an MD and a health policy researcher at UCLA. This was really um, his baby. And and because I work a lot on these types of free economics, meets medicine issues, uh, he brought me along for the ride. But, you know, one of the things that we do when we are trying to come up with ideas, and Chris and I and, and, and our group, we we almost brainstorm three times a week. We just sit down for 45 minutes to an hour and try to think of ideas. And one way that we do that is we we see experiences around us we try to you know they're a source for ideas but the other is we just look at the data itself and say are there anything any kind of characteristics of these data that are particularly unique and do they give us any ideas so in this case here there is a data set that has the birthday of physicians of every physician who's practicing in the United States and you say wow that's kind of different what ideas come to mind and I'll, you know, literally this week, Chris and I, we looked to see whether or not your outcomes are different uh, if you happen to share the same birthday as the doctor. Under the idea that a doctor's caring for you in the hospital, you happen to be there around your birthday, he or she notices that in the medical record. It's like, oh, wow, Lisa, you and I have the same birthday. Would that shared experience lead to any differences in the way that they provide care? Maybe they're a little bit more attentive. Long story short is we don't find anything there, so that's a null result. But <laughs> that's the exercise, you know. We just look and think about as many ideas as possible.
2: Well, let me go to caller Eric in San Francisco. Who's on the line? Eric, join us.
6: Good morning. So about 25 years ago, I was at a just a regular checkup at my doctor's office. Um, when the checkup was all done, she happened to mention that in the lobby they were doing free heart echocardiograms. Something is free. Of course, I want to stop by, and I I got an echo, and they found that I had an aortic aneurysm on the aortic arch. Um, it was minor at that point. It was measured for the next twenty five years, and in January I had um, a an aorta replacement to fix the the defect.
2: Wow. Eric, that is really chancy. I'm curious Babu, like what does that make you think about in terms of you know whether or not like a natural experiment about like free services that are being offered at a hospital or something
3: uh, first of all, Eric, uh, I'm glad things went okay but yeah. this is this is this is exactly where an idea comes from. so what what Eric's scenario answers is the question of whether or not screening can reliably pick up health outcomes and, and conditions that we care about. So by chance, Eric went to his doctor on a day when screening was available. There are people in his doctor's practice who went to the doctor on other days when screening wasn't free. If you just look at those two groups of, doc, two groups of patients, people who are like Eric who went on that day when screening was available, and all the other patients in that same practice, And you compared them and you looked at differences in heart-related conditions over the course of the next decade, you could look and see whether or not his experience was generalizable. So it's a beautiful example of how a natural experiment could play out.
2: Well, this is writes, surgical survival rates depend on the day of the week of the operation. So don't get surgery on Friday through Sunday. I was the first patient after a long holiday weekend and wondered if my poor outcome was a result. Chris or or Bob, have you ever talked about the day of the week of a surgery affecting the outcome?
3: So we haven't, but it's the sort of, people have thought about that issue. I would call that the weekend effect. And Mina, the the big thing that we have to think about there is, well, the finding is the following, is that if you look at people who undergo surgeries or come in with heart attacks on the weekend, they tend to have worse outcomes. And the question is always, Is it because the staffing is lower or something is different in the hospital? You're not getting the A-team. That's a possibility. And that does happen. Or B, is it that people who show up on the weekend with a medical condition, they tend to be more severe because who wants to go to the hospital on a weekend? Or or for example, Christmas, who wants to go to the hospital on Christmas? Mm -hmm. Nobody, unless something is really, really bad. And in that case, the outcomes might be worse because of that, that the person who's showing up there or the people who are showing up there are sicker. As opposed to the staffing also being lower, which we which we know to be true.
2: You know, speaking of having a heart attack uh, at a particular time, it reminds me about the um, the natural experiment that you conducted about doctors and, and caregivers who were uh, at the nation's big cardiology conference. So typically at that time, cardiologists are all gathered at this big conference, and that. Chris, it was actually better to be hospitalized with a heart issue when the nation's cardiologists were away? Can you explain?
4: (laughs) (laughs) So that's what the study showed. So the idea is that during these cardiology meetings, and and every specialty has these meetings where, uh, you know, doctors from around the country, around the world, all go to one of these huge conferences, there'll be 1000s of people there, they might uh, get lectures on on advances in the field or get training on new techniques or, or what have you. And the idea is if you're at a teaching hospital, like the one we work at where, where you have sort of leaders in the field who are doing research on the latest and greatest uh, techniques in their field, they are going to be the ones who are kind of most likely to go to these conferences because they're going to be giving the talks. They're going to be updating everybody else. So if you happen to have a heart attack during the time of these meetings, when you show up at the hospital, right? people don't stop having heart attacks because the American College of Cardiology has a meeting, right? So people end up in the hospital. Some of those doctors are going to be away. And what the study showed was that during these meetings, mortality for some of these more severe um, heart attacks uh, actually went down which is counterintuitive you would think that if these really wonderful doctors are out of town that that their care would the care of patients would suffer um, but what it turned out is on a little further investigation uh, that the use of a number of invasive procedures went down presumably because these doctors weren't there to be doing them. And so what happened was maybe the doctors who were behind were were using these procedures less. They might have been more adherent to uh, guideline-driven care, for example. And that meant that on average, uh, patients might have done a little better. And it was sort of a demonstration that for some of these patients, uh, less can be more, that they might get more out of not having uh, an invasive cardiac procedure.
2: Yeah. And and again, Bapu, the, the rate of Mortality decreasing was like more than ten percent. I think twelve and a half percent, if my memory serves. Um, that's that seemed really significant to me, and I was just curious what kind of reaction you got <laughs> from cardiologists. I imagine you shared <laughs> that finding.
3: Well, first of all, I'm not sure if you have cardiologists who listen to this show. You might want to screen them out. No, uh, but you're right. The magnitude of the benefit was enormous. Right, and, and when I when I give talks on this study, I, I'll often say. Think about all the things that cardiologists will often do, prescribe a cholesterol medication, blood pressure medication, um, aspirin, to perform a stent in the heart. All of those things combined do not generate the same benefit as just the practice patterns being different for the people who stay in the hospital versus do not during the dates of these meetings. Uh, You know, the, the, I think the response was probably mixed. Those are some cardiologists who thought it was quite interesting. And those cardiologists probably tend to think that sometimes less might be more, but there's other cardiologists who are sort of in disbelief to which I would respond, like, this is a really clean, natural experiment, right? People don't know uh, when the AHA, American Heart Association meeting is, and they certainly don't choose to have a, a heart attack or a cardiac arrest differentially on dates when they don't know those meetings are being held. And, and you can see that very clearly in the data. It's, they're almost as good as randomized to these two different paths of care.
2: So then in a perfect world, what would you have liked the reaction to be? Or or maybe uh, some changes that could have been made?
3: I think the reaction that I, w- I would look for is, is an, A, an understanding of how this sort of tool, this natural experiment, can really be helpful to try to figure out something that we, we, we know and we struggle with in medicine. You know, I mentioned earlier that one of the questions we all think about in medicine is, how quickly do you need to act? The second question is, is whether or not something that we're going to do for someone is going to help them or hurt them. Uh, there's certainly people who have received medications or gotten surgeries who are listening, who are like, you know, that really helped me. But there's probably also people who were harmed by a medication that they received, a side effect that they didn't expect or uh, a treatment that uh, didn't go well. And one of the things that we got to figure out is how to use data and experience to try to figure out when is it that procedures are helpful and harmful. And I think that's exactly where these sorts of natural experiments can come in and say, look, in this setting for these types of patients, we might actually get away or be better off without doing certain things.
2: So Vicky on Discord writes, luck certainly plays huge roles in life overall. I'd love to know what advice they have for us given this knowledge, or is the solution more at a systemic community level? For example, hospitals taking care to create access to ER rooms on marathon days, etc. We did talk a little bit about, and you touched on some of the broader changes that can be made, and feel free to answer Vicky's question directly. But I guess uh, I'm wondering, should we be, you know, second-guessing our Treatment plans or or diagnoses. How how do we push back um, if we're concerned that maybe there are some, you know, biases uh, that are playing a role in the healthcare that we're receiving?
4: Yeah, field, these yeah, are all. Go ahead, Papu. Uh, this this is Chris, but these are all. Really oh, sorry, good questions. Chris. Go ahead. That's okay. That's okay. These, these are all really good questions. Every time we look at one of these studies, you have to ask, the, all right, so so what? What do we do with this information? And I, I think like you said, uh people are sometimes hesitant to second guess their doctors, but I, I wouldn't discourage that. You can go about it politely. But if we <laughs> you look at the example of the heart attack care, um, if you are having a heart attack or you're a family member and and your doctor is telling you you need this procedure, you can ask, can we wait a bit wait a beat and just just pause for a moment and say, would it be reasonable not to do this procedure? And, and what are the risks and benefits of not doing it, right? So sometimes just taking that moment to pause um, and see, could I be a, a victim or potentially a beneficiary of luck? Um, uh, and could we slow down and think about this a little bit more deliberately so that we don't fall into the trap of a a bias or, or some sort of... Um, chance occurrence that could harm us. That's one thing, right? We we can't make every child be born in September or October to get their flu shot. So that means we need to ask, how can we lower barriers to kids born in summer months getting a flu shot? Can we make it easier for a young child to get vaccinated at a pharmacy? Can they get vaccinated at school? Can we bring a vaccine to the home? Right. So, So every one of these natural experiments can point to some sort of structural problem. And then it's incumbent on us as a medical community and patients to say, well, what about the structure could be improved so that we don't fall victim to chance?
2: Mm. Let me go to Another caller, Barbara in San Francisco. Barbara, you're on. Uh,
7: Thank you. I had a really excellent specialist doctor who knew me very well. And unfortunately, he retired. And about that time, I developed a symptom that was not good. I, I know my own body, so I knew that something was abnormal about what was happening to me. So I went to a new doctor And I told this doctor what was happening, and I was shrugged off, saying, oh, well, this is nothing. And I didn't accept that, and I found another doctor who would listen to me. Well, it turns out that I had a condition that could have killed me, Mm. that could have been fatal. So when you are in a situation of switching from one doctor who knows you very well and whom you trust to someone new, and you come up with this situation, trust your own feelings about it, and make a change. Mm-hmm. I went back later to that second doctor, and I said, "You must listen to your patients. We know our bodies, and gave that person a favor of saying, "Hey, hey, please change your behavior." Um, and I turned out having, I think, being charged for that office visit to tell. <laughs> that person what the problem was which is well, kind of
2: funny i think it, it was probably helpful and i'm so glad that you trusted your instincts barbara and are here to tell us um your story and it does sort of raise an interesting question whether or not it's true or not but but whether or not switching doctors creates vulnerabilities or increases in immortality. Um, we're talking about these random occurrences or chance events that influence the medical care we receive, also the cognitive biases that can influence how we're diagnosed or treated uh, by physicians or how we experience the healthcare system with Chris Worsham, a researcher at Harvard Medical School, pulmonary and critical care physician at Mass General, Bapu Jena, professor at Harvard Medical School, host of the Freakonomics MD podcast, and a medical doctor and economist. And we're talking with you, our listeners, all about whether or not you've wondered if a chance occurrence influenced the medical care you received or if you yourself work in healthcare and are finding that these experiences, uh, events resonate with you. 866 6786 to join the conversation. The email address forum at kqed.org. Our social channels, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
5: We're learning how random events influence the healthcare system
2: and as a result, our own health. We're learning about biases. We're learning about how these chance events can be predictable. And we can learn from them if we take time to observe them, which Bapu Jenna and Chris Worsham have. They're co-authors of the new book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. The listener writes, As a family physician, I have noted that after a very, very painfully long day, after a previously painful long day, a person with multiple complaints at 4.45 p.m. may get less empathy and follow-through than a person seen earlier. Medicine is broken, and 15-minute appointments are not appropriate for most chronic care. We are responsible for giving. We are burned out. You know, Chris, you actually write quite movingly about um, a mistake you made when you were an intern, I believe. Uh, you mixed up two elderly patients with cardiac issues and prescribed treatment for one that was, was meant for the other. Um, could you reflect on that a little bit, especially in light of this listener's comment, too, about their concerns about you know being at their best at 445?
4: Yeah, I I think whether you at the time I was when I made that mistake that I write about in the book, um, I was a brand new doctor um, and I've now been practicing for 10 years and hopefully practicing for many more. But some of the same issues affect all of us, whether we're at the beginning, middle or end of our career. And a lot of it is centered around just how overwhelming it can be at times, the the amount of, um, responsibilities we have, um, whether you're working in a hospital, um, and have some very sick patients under your care or the uh, oftentimes far more chaotic environment of primary care where you have extraordinarily complex patients to take care of, um, in a very short amount of time, uh, as was mentioned. And I think, like I was saying earlier, we're human beings and, uh, so much of the challenges of the job um, relate to our trying to be superhuman, that we want to do everything for everybody. We want to be perfect. We want to never fall victim to bias, never um, use a mental shortcut that leads patients somewhere, but it's just hardwired into who we are. Um, and so much of what we look at in the book is is how this hardwiring manifests itself. And And there is a silver lining to that in that we can take advantage of it. For example, we, we look at left digit bias. So if we see um, something that's 1.99, it feels like it's a lot less than 2.00, even though it's essentially the same. Um, and so there's opportunities to study things because of these biases. Um, so it's a double-edged sword. Um, we, we're humans, um, but that humanity creates some really interesting research opportunities as well.
2: They create really interesting research opportunities, but it also sounds like, uh, Chris, that they create also opportunities for addressing? So, for example, in the case of burnout or distraction, are there things that have been tried or can be done to, to address that, knowing um, that it is a reality for physicians, hospitalists, surgeons, and so on?
4: I, I think for the answer of distraction, there are a lot of um, really great tools that we have, much of which we have borrowed from other uh, high risk industries like aviation or, or like nuclear safety, right? Where we recognize that humans are humans and prone to error. We put in backup systems. We can put in more when needed. We can automate when we can automate that can help a lot with distraction. Uh, When it comes to burnout, um, I would get a prize if I had a lot of prizes, if I had the answer to that one, I think that is probably, um, if you ask many doctors, that's probably the single biggest issue facing the physician workforce right now. Uh, and it doesn't seem like there is any silver bullet. Um, and so, you know, we, we could talk all day about that. But I don't, I don't have any um, answers for, for how to address burnout. There's a lot of patients who need care. And uh, it seems like there's just not enough time in the day uh, to do it as well as we would like to or, or as well as we know we can.
2: Let me go to caller Irene in Sacramento. Hi, Irene you're on
6: Thank you. very interesting topic. I'm a former nurse and quality assurance auditor pharmaceutical company. I would work for you any day. I want to address uh, a few things uh, the previous to the previous uh, caller about uh, Doctors not believing in patients or not listening to them. I don't know how much that happens with men. It definitely happens with women. It has happened to me, and I'm a nurse or was a nurse. And uh, in regards to uh, what happens to the patients when they get to the hospital, you know, there may be the right doctor, but if the OR is not cleaned or if there is not the equipment because somebody used the last, you know, stents, um, in the right staffing, also, which I think you you touched up on that. Um, the other thing is that um, I am an advocate for myself, just like that other company, uh, caller. But I think that every patient that goes in to see a physician, especially when it's on a critical issue, not just you know pimple on your nose, I think they should have a patient advocate. And many times, family members go with them, but family members on a critical issue, may be stressed, may not understand. And I think somebody that is not connected to them at all, but understands a little bit about the medical issue, they can sometimes uh, sit with a patient, not take the the surgeon or the the doctor's time, uh, maybe for five minutes after the doctor has been with the patient for 15 minutes, and then just, you know, hack it out with, Another patient who under another person the advocate who understands what's going on and what what they understood and maybe kind of like a scribe so mm. that they can rehash what was discussed and uh, I was also the recipient of a I was going to be patient number fifty four in the United States a long time ago that would have been operated on the wrong leg because uh, the doctor who came in at six o'clock in the morning to operate on me, the, or whoever put in the information on that piece of paper, said that I needed my surgery on the left leg, and it was the right leg. Ooh. Again, I, uh, you know, patient advocates should be always yeah. to be with a percent.
2: Well, well, thank you for the for those those thoughts. And, and I mean, I think in that case, it sounds like just a straight up mistake. But but the random. The random events that uh, can influence the medical care we get, we're getting lots of comments from listeners about what they feel influenced. A listener on Discord writes, A few feet can make a difference if you're in a serious accident on San Pablo Avenue in the East Bay and are on the Albany side of the line. You are in Alameda County and likely to be transported by ground to Highland or Alta Bates. If you're on the El Cerrito side, you are in Contra Costa County and are likely to end up in a helicopter headed to John Muir in Walnut Creek. Another... Listener Claude writes, as a stroke neurologist, I see random chance influence the outcome of my patients all the time. I tell all my patients to go to the hospital as early as possible if they have stroke symptoms, as we have time-sensitive treatments and we can only safely offer in the first few hours. However, this depends on whether they seek help, how they get to the hospital, whether they call 911 versus come by private auto. Which hospital they go to, even what the weather is, or if they need to be flown from a primary to tertiary hospital, patient and staff education can mitigate some of these factors, but some variables are out of our control. It's kind of like what we touched on earlier, uh bapu, about not necessarily feeling like, "Oh my goodness, the randomness means that you know we really have no control. W- what you really do want people to take away is. Where we can exercise some degree of learning and as a result, some degree of of mitigation in terms of poor health outcomes for random events,
3: I think that's right i mean there's there's sort of two levels of learning, so one is the the level of science and understanding what works and 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 doesn't work and a lot of a lot of the studies that we do, they come from ideas very much like this. for example, Barbara mentioned what happened when our doctor retired. We've, we've actually looked at that and we can show in very large data, of millions of people who, some of whom have a doctor who retires and some of whom don't, that there are discontinuities in care. That care gets disrupted and people are harmed. And the, of course, the solution then is not to say, well, make doctors work forever, but say, you know what? We need to figure out who are the people who are at highest risk of problems with the disruption and make sure that that continuity is well-established. But the other theme I think that I'm, I'm hearing from the listeners is this issue of time. And we focus a lot in healthcare thinking about access. You know, Does someone have insurance? Do they have the ability to see a doctor? And we talk a lot about things like cost, how much do medications cost or doctor's visits cost. But there's a, another element which we don't talk about enough, which I actually think is probably one of the biggest issues, which is time. You can't solve a problem in 15 minutes if it's a complex problem. You can't make a patient feel comfortable about a diagnosis you just given them if you have 15 minutes or 30 minutes to do that. And part of what we, you know, we talk about in the book and we think needs to be improved is, well, some people require a lot of time and they should be given that time. And other people, we could probably get through very quickly. Uh, but the way the medical system is structured, it doesn't have that sort of um, efficiency in, 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 a, in a sort of obvious way.
2: Well, let me remind listeners that we're talking with Bapu Jenna and Chris Worsham, both doctors and authors, co-authors of the new book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There is one other... Uh, natural experiment that I was really fascinated by that I was wondering if you could talk about um, and, and this is, and there were many that were talking about, you know, sort of age biases <laughs> that we that we have um, with regard to, I think there's left digit bias as Related to age in the sense that you would get different care, say, if you were 39 versus if you had turned 40 just a few (laughs) few weeks later, even though there's very little difference in who you are really um, over that short period of time. But there was another one that really had broader impacts, which was whether you were 17 or 18 years old, meaning whether or not you were viewed as a child or as an adult, and that playing a role in what you were prescribed to treat uh, issues that you may have had. Could you talk about that experiment, Babu?
3: Actually, I mean, let me pass it on to Chris because i okay, is a sure. paper that Chris was the lead author on. this a beautiful idea.
4: Yeah. So it, it's exactly like you said, when we're 17, we're apparently a child. And when we're 18, we're somehow magically an adult. But f- for those of us who are well past that age, if you remember back to that day, you turned 18, obviously you didn't Nothing was any different, but the world started seeing you a lot differently. And so, yeah, it matters whether or not you could um, uh, vote or join the military or or what have you, Uh, but it also matters any time we're differentiating between children and adults, which we do in the hospital. So if you fell down uh, off your bike and broke your arm when you were 17 years old and 11 months, uh, you are going to go potentially to a pediatric area of an emergency department and be treated as a child. Uh, but if you fell and broke your arm a week or two later, you're suddenly an adult, and now you're going to the adult emergency department, and you're going to be treated as an adult by doctors who take care of adults. And so we wanted to see, um, did this impact uh, opioid prescription rates? Um And what we saw was uh, generally over as patients get older, from 17 up through 18, there's a sort of gradual trend that they're more likely to get prescribed an opioid, which we might guess is because doctors are generally more comfortable prescribing an opioid to an older patient. Um, But right at that 18th birthday, we see this sudden jump in opioid prescriptions from 17 and 11 months up to 18 years old in one month. Uh, And that Suggests to us that there's something special happening in that boundary, right? Right when that patient becomes, quote unquote, an adult, they're suddenly treated differently. And we can show that, uh, or we did show that there was about a nine percent, nine or 10% increase in opioid prescription rates just because someone is quote, an adult instead of a child, um, not because of anything related to their underlying problem or biology. And that also corresponded to a similar size increase in opioid-related adverse events. So things like long-term opioid use, overdose um, in the following year. So really... um, remarkable in that regard that these drugs that we know are so dangerous are being prescribed for a reason as arbitrary as the government decides that you're an adult when you're 18.
2: Wow. Well, the Zissner writes, my husband fainted in the hospital while visiting a family member. He was taken to the ER and was told he had suffered a concussion. My husband is a surfer. So his first question was, how soon can I get back in the water? Unfortunately, the ER doctor was also a surfer. He told my husband that he would be fine to start surfing again in a week or so. Sure enough, my husband went surfing a week later and suffered another concussion, which has left him with lifelong problems, hypersensitivity to various sounds, light sensitivity and personality changes. I truly believe that if the doctor and my husband had not had a connection through surfing, he would have been more cautious about getting back in the water what do you think about this, Bapu? Because I think it was interesting that you were saying if there is sort of like a shared connection, like a shared birthday, you weren't seeing um, necessarily changes in the the kind of care that somebody received.
3: Yeah, so I have two ideas. And and let me just say that this for Chris and I is, is really interesting because what we do is we hear stories like this and then think of, what does it make us think of? So it makes me think of two things. So the first is if someone had a concussion when it was like not really nice out. So you wouldn't expect to be surfing and someone had a concussion just a month or two later when it was nice out and you might get back on uh on you know on the waves. That is sort of random if that as long as the reason for the concussion was random. And you might see that people who have that concussion in that second time period where they're more likely to be back on the wave surfing might do worse. And so you this is a testable theory um, that you could look at. But the specific story of the shared connection reminds me of a paper that Cass Sunstein and I uh, had a, a while ago where we looked at what happens when people share the same first name. Now, this is not in medicine. We're talking about speeding tickets here. We had data from Florida, and we knew the officers who pulled them over, and we knew the drivers who were pulled over, and we knew the names of both parties. And what we found is that if a driver is pulled over by an officer who shares their same first name, they're actually less likely to get a ticket. Than if the officer does not. So Chris does really well. Mina, you're probably between, and Bapu does not do well uh, for that reason. But you know, it does have spillovers. And when I give talks and I give that example, I always talk about how that same connection in medicine could play out in usually positive ways. But what your reader, what your listener just described, is actually a negative way. So it's you know, scary, but but interesting.
2: Yeah. I'm not so sure Mina would even qualify as in between, but I <laughs> maybe you're right. Wow.
3: <laughs> so we touched
2: on this earlier, um, Babu and Chris, but but do you find that the kinds of results of natural experiments and the correlations that emerge from them do tend to be welcomed, especially if they're related to physician cognitive biases? tend to be welcomed by the medical community <laughs> and either of you can answer this
4: so I'll, I'll start because i i have not been on the receiving end of the cardiologist the way bapu has but <laughs> uh, but uh, but a lot of the questions we purposefully look into are questions that we can't otherwise answer and so by and large um these are welcome, at least we we like to think they are, because we can't do a randomized trial because it's too impractical or it's unethical. And so there's this question out there and we can find a natural experiment in the data uh, to sort of answer that question. So I think by and large, that's what we're going for. And they're oftentimes welcome. I don't think doctors generally are are too upset to hear about um, the the answers to questions they themselves might've been asking.
2: Yeah, would you agree, Bapu?
4: I would. And the other thing is, you know,
3: many of the times what we're showing is that the same types of biases that affect everybody just show up in medicine. Um, and the left digit bias where you go to the store and something is a ninety nine, and, and the reason it says because the brain thinks that that's cheaper than $2, that same sort of bias affects us in medicine as well. So it shouldn't be too surprising.
2: Well, Babu Jen and Chris Worsham, thank you for wondering about the things that can't be answered, and then looking into them and providing us with useful information. Um, And also really appreciate having you both on the show today. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, as always, listeners, for your questions and experiences and stories. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.